Just to read again from the passage that was read earlier. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, forgive us that we have underutilized God the Holy Spirit who wants to infuse our lives not only with power, but with insight, intrinsic motivation, and desire to see your mission fulfilled as others around us could know they are loved, they are forgiven, and you're willing to enter their life to bring order out of the chaos. I pray, Father, that every person here this evening would see how valuable your Holy Spirit is in their life and that each one would begin to walk in the Spirit and that they, that would make a difference in their world. I know, Lord, this is one night quickly upon us. Quickly it will pass. But I pray, Father, that even though I offer little, I know your Spirit is here. I know that each person in this room has different pressures on his or her life, different joys, different circumstances. And yet I pray that the, the foolishness of preaching would be such that each person would somehow hear from the lips of one very limited man something that would be applied specifically to her or his heart. For that to happen, we want your Holy Spirit to be involved in the transaction, imparting to each what he or she needs. And I ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. I, I'm really not a fan of trying to reduce complexities of the Christian life down to simple formulas. But I fully believe that the Christian faith should be transferable. We should be able to pass on what we're understanding from Scripture. And we should be able to do it in such a way that, the, that a child could understand. But also there should be enough in it that the greatest scholars won't be able to exhaust or plumb the depths of all that's in it. Nevertheless, I want to say that if, in fact, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come upon us and we would be his witnesses, then there's something essential about the Spirit's ministry in our life if we're going to share Christ with others. And I want to try to work my way through the labyrinth of confusion about this particular ministry of the third person of the Trinity. And the reason why is because in my own life, I found much confusion. I'll try to explain it to you. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, and, and, and it was a rougher part of L.A. We went to an inner-city Pentecostal church, and I loved the people in that church. We spent almost every uh, weekend, midweek, and so on at that church. It was the core of our, of our social life as a family. I loved the people. But there was only one person with a college education in the whole church, and there was tons of misinformation in that particular church. Well-meaning, I don't want to judge any Pentecostal church by this church. I've been to many. I love the people, but there was a lot of confusion. At that particular church, if you came forward on a Sunday supposedly to receive Christ, and the next week you came forward supposedly to be filled with the Spirit and spoke in tongues, then you were considered a mature Christian after one week. 
The third week, they would ask you maybe to teach Sunday school. And that's why I learned how to sing the Communist Children's Worker Song in Sunday school at that church, because probably some labor leader at the Bethlehem Steel Factory came to faith, and that's what, what, what are you going to teach kids? That's what he knew. And we were sometimes taken in by so many things, and I can remember people running up and down the aisles, screaming and yelling and all this sort of thing. And, and though I love these people, it was confusing to me. I was taught that I could lose my salvation. I didn't want to. How was I going to be secure? And so I went to a camp one time, and they told me if I went to that camp, maybe I'd get the Holy Spirit, and if I spoke in tongues, and somehow everything would be fine. I went forward to get the Holy Spirit, and I put my arms up because they said, you got to put your antenna up. If your antenna are up, you're not going to connect with the Holy Spirit. Not, not all Pentecostal churches believe this. I'm not in any way trying to trash Pentecostals. I'm just trying to say this was my experience, and it emphasizes the confusion. So I put my antenna up. They said, you got to hold on. you got to hold on. So I'm going like this. Then somebody else came up and said, you got to let go. you got to let go. Another one says, you got to pray through. I go, what does that mean? And you start getting ambiguity, and it's something that you've got to do. Then you start getting anxiety to accompany that ambiguity. And I was scared stiff. Some guy comes down the aisle, and he slaps his hands on my, sh my head, and he shakes me up, and he throws me down on the ground, and I'm crying. But I'm going, what is this? I, I didn't sign up for this. I'm there for about three hours. Nothing's happening. I remember two women at my church growing up, Sister Regal and Sister Fry. Sister Regal always prayed on Sunday morning, shundadada, shundadada, shundadada. I could repeat it because I heard it every Sunday morning. Sister Fry would always go, Lydia, I see, Lydia, I see, Lydia, I see. Same thing every morning. Brother Brooks would get up and have long, lengthy King James Version translations, and they would, no repetition in the translation, and I'm going, or the interpretation, I'm going, what is this? And I just went off the rails. I said, I, I, I don't get this, and if I need that to get to heaven, I'm cooked. I'm not getting there. I go to college, and I become a Christian, and I fell in among evangelical Quakers. And they had quiet in their service. I thought, this is great. And then I went to seminary, and my seminary, the New Testament department, not the theology department, but the New Testament department, they were what they called cessationists. They believed that all the sign gifts, gifts of wisdom, gifts of speaking in tongues, gifts of knowledge, that these would cease and be done away with. And 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. What was the partial? These sign gifts. And what would the perfect be? You read the text and it looks like when Jesus comes, these things will be done away. But they said, no, it can't be the coming of Jesus because the Greek there, when the perfect comes, is tautelion in the Greek. It's a neuter tense, and therefore it can't be Jesus. It would have to be hotelios, neuter, singular. So what's the neuter? And they said, it's the coming of the canon of Scripture. When Scriptures are here, we don't need these gifts anymore. I go, man, that doesn't look like what the text said. We had to translate 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 in seminary and come out at the other end as cessationists who had sort of a cookie-cutter view. I go to a theology prof there who was not a cessationist. I said, this isn't working for me. And he said, well, what if the tautelion, what if the neuter, 
is the coming of the kingdom. It could be described that way. And if the kingdom comes, the king comes with it. And therefore, it's possible that those gifts are still operational until the kingdom comes. I go, wow. Among the Pentecostals, I became a cessationist. Among the cessationists, I became a charismatic. <laughs> I don't speak in tongues, but I believe in the robust ministry of the Holy Spirit in our midst now, today. And Jesus said, when the Spirit will come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the world. Nevertheless, I still think there's much confusion, and I would like to lay out from Scripture what I am discovering and then apply it to all of our lives so that we will bear personal responsibility to that ministry where the Holy Spirit blowing in the sails of our lives will be deploying us to go to various places in our world. First off, let's define some terms. And let's start with the, the idea of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. In Mark 1.8, John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He makes a distinction between his baptism and Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 12.13, it says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, that is, the body of Christ. The word baptized there is an aorist tense. That's completed action past time. This happens to you at one moment in your spiritual life. Now, Homer in the Odyssey in the place where Ulysses is fighting against Polyphemus, the Cyclops. Um, the Cyclops, he defeats Cyclops. It's a funny passage if you ever read Homer's Odyssey. But anyway, he defeats him. And after he defeats him, he talks about the Cyclops' Polyphemus's eye sizzling. And it sounded like the same sound when a blacksmith dips or baptizes his hot iron into the water. You've heard that sound before. Maybe when you touch a iron when it's real hot and so on. And what does it mean? What then is happening when I'm baptized by the Holy Spirit? I'm being placed into something. It says I'm placed into the body of Christ. And it happens, I would suggest to you, the moment you believe. Here's the text uh, in Romans chapter 8. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, the Spirit entered your life, and the Spirit took you and placed you in the body of Christ. Romans 8, 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is that act of the third person of the Trinity, whereby he takes residence in your life and places you in the body of Christ to do God's work in the world. Imagine the prospects of this. Have you ever in your life said, ah, I wish I could have lived in the days of the historic incarnation and seen Jesus' ministry among us firsthand? I'd have loved to have been at the Sermon on the Mount and seen Jesus' eyes when he talked. Was there inflection in his voice? Did it rise and fall? Whoops, I almost fell off the platform. <laughs> would, would he cut people's faces in his hands when he made a point? What did his smile look like when he talked? I'd have loved to have been there at the feeding of the 5,000. I'd have loved to have seen him walk on the water. What would I have done if I'd have been in the boat? Would I have gotten out like Peter or would I have huddled with the other disciples? I'd have liked to have found out what I would have done by being there. I, I wouldn't want to have been there when he was crucified. I don't think I could have handled that. 
but I would have wanted to have been there when the women came back from the tomb and said, he is alive. And I would have wanted to have been there when he said to his disciples, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. And those were his last words to us as he ascended into heaven. I'd have loved to have been there for that. But we're not. It's a historic incarnation. Just by very nature of it, it could only happen once. But people, we are here during the days of an incarnation. And as the incarnation of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, as the work continues to go on in our midst. Jesus explained it in the Upper Room Discourse. If you read John's Gospel, one quarter of that Gospel is one meal's experience, Jesus with his disciples. He's giving them very important instruction. And what does he say to them? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Um, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and were it not so, I would have told you. But if I go to prepare a place for you, I shall come again, and I'll be with you. And you know where I'm going. You know the way. And Thomas says, no, Lord, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long that you haven't seen the Father? Now, Jesus has good theology. He hasn't confused the persons of the Godhead. He's not saying he is the Father. But if you study the scriptures, particularly Philippians chapter 2, it's clear that everything Jesus says, all the way through John's gospel, from the time he talks to Nicodemus to the upper room, all the Father told me to say that I have said. All the Father told me to do that I have done. And I have given you an example that you will follow in my steps. And not only that, I'm going to resource you for the work. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to send you another helper. The construction in the Greek, another exactly like me. God the Holy Spirit. And you will do greater works because I go to be the Father. The work of the incarnation of the Holy Spirit through the body of Christ is going to be disseminated further. What did he mean by greater works? Did he mean if Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we're going to empty cemeteries? No, he didn't mean that. He meant that he is deploying all of us into kingdom work. Everybody matters in this enterprise. And I think maybe, too, it means greater works, similar to how it talks about the woman who gave her might. She gave of her all. She gave a greater amount, Jesus said, than those who gave out of their surplus. It's a different word used in the Greek, but nevertheless, I think the sentiment is there. The fact that we who are incompetent can do anything at all is a remarkable thing, a testimony to the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Jesus said in John 15, also in the upper room, apart from me, you can do nothing, but I'm going to send you my spirit. So you can do this work in the world. Wow, it is a mind blower to me. Why don't we utilize this resource then? I, I, I don't quite understand it. It's really interesting to me too. I, 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 I have met people who are miserable, Christians who are miserable. They don't realize they're part of a great enterprise. I twice have had men come up to me and say, Jerry, you gotta pray for me. I'm the only person at my work who's a Christian and I am miserable. I said, okay. Both cases, I put my hand on the guy's shoulder. I said, Lord, look how miserable my dear brother is at his place of work. I mean, my word, just take him home to heaven and get him out of here. 
In both cases, they knocked my hand off their shoulder and they said, what are you praying? I said, well, there's two ways you could look at your circumstance. Either you're strategically placed and the Holy Spirit wants to get a beachhead at that location through you, or you can be miserable. I choose the other. I want to be a part of something that's going on that's really big and eternal and so on. But here you go. People, you matter in God's program. You're strategically placed for kingdom work. Okay, so that's being baptized with spirit. Spirit comes into your life when you believe. You are placed in the body of Christ, and you are part of a great enterprise. Seeing the world come to Jesus. Second, to be filled with the spirit. What does that mean? In Ephesians chapter 5, we read that we should be imitators of God as beloved children. It's a fair-minded expectation if the Spirit of God is in you. It tells us that we should walk in love. We can walk in love, and it warns us of all the things that will happen if that love isn't balanced by truth. We can fall into immorality. We can be those kinds of Christians who say, oh, you should be loving, and they make it as an excuse for all kinds of horrible behavior. And so it goes on and says, not only walk in love, it says you should walk in the light, walk in the truth. Well, there's all kinds of problems there. You could be rigid with the truth, and you could hurt people. Somehow we've got to walk in love and walk in the truth. And I don't know about you, but that's going to take some dexterity. And it says in Ephesians 5.15, therefore, be careful how you walk. The Greek word for careful, akribos, from which we get the English word acrobat. There's got to be some dexterity. Matter of fact, I'd suggest to you it's not humanly possible to walk with the dexterity that God wants us to walk with. So it says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation. Be filled with the Spirit. This is a weird command, be filled with the Spirit. It's a present command. That means it should be ongoing. It's got a passive voice. What does that mean? Um, you've got shoes that have uh, shoestrings on them. If it was an active voice, you'd tie both your shoes. If it was a middle voice, you'd participate in the action. I might tie one, you'd tie one. If it's a passive voice, you sit back, I tie both your shoes for you. It's a passive imperative. In other words, how do you obey a command passively? And the idea is, let it be done to you. This is normative Christian life. We should be walking in the Spirit. So the question is then, if that's true, why don't we? Why don't we walk in the Spirit? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through chapter 3, verse 3, describes three kinds of people. First, there's the natural man. They don't know God. They're not walking in the Spirit because they've never encountered Him. They've been baptized by the Spirit and placed in the body of Christ. And the Spirit take residence in their lives so that they could be deployed in the work of God in the world. There's another kind of person in 2, 15 through 16, and that's the spiritual person who knows God. Spirit's in their life. They're walking in the Spirit. But if you're like me, maybe sometimes you get off the rails a bit. Bad traffic, that could do it for me. Sometimes some conflict with a friend or to misunderstand somebody, or to watch one night of evening news. That can do it to all of us. I don't care what side you watch. But sometimes we can get fleshly. Maybe we lean into a temptation. We regret it, but we're not really walking with the Spirit in that moment. 
And so this person in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, is a fleshly or carnal person. This is a person who is a believer but lives his or her life so caught up in the things of this world that he or she has gone off the rails as far as kingdom service goes. This isn't a person who's going to be doing kingdom work. It could be due to unconfessed sin that gets the better of us. It could be due to neglect or even indifference to the things of God. How do we fix this? The resources are all there. I think we can engage in a concept that some have called spiritual breathing. Spiritual breathing, you exhale. 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to cleanse us of all our sins and all of our unrighteousness. Confess. You say, man, Lord, I know I haven't been walking with you the way I should have been walking. I'm not pleased about it. I own it. I confess it to you. I thank you, God, that you love me with a love that is not conditioned by my performance. It's not improved by my well-doing. It's not diminished by my poor doing. I own it openly before you. I confess my sin. Exhale. Second, inhale. You just say, Lord, your scriptures are commanding me to let it be done to me. Fill me with your spirit. How do I know I'm filled? It's not because of some ecstatic emotional experience. That may or may not happen. But the way you know you're filled with the Spirit is because he said this in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Is it his will for you to be filled with the Spirit? Absolutely. If we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in the things we've asked from him, we know we have that which we have asked. You start stepping out in faith. You asked him to fill you. He said he would. Go out in the fullness of the Spirit. This idea of spiritual breathing, I, I pray it often every day. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to be mindful of those resources. And then I want to watch what happens. And it's kind of fun. Actually, it's a lot of fun. I'll explain it as we go. There are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There are many. They're listed in Romans 12. They're listed in 1 Corinthians 12. But these are not exhaustive lists. Um, the reason why I know that is the first people mentioned in the Bible who are be filled with the Spirit are the two artists who made beautiful works for the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Samson was filled with the Holy Spirit for mighty acts of strength. These are not exhaustive lists. There may be all kinds of things that he may gift you to do. But what I can say about these gifts is that, one, all of us are to serve in these various ways, the various ways that are mentioned in Scripture, but some are uniquely prompted and given an aptitude. The scriptures aren't clear about the number of gifts we might have or if they can change, but the scriptures are absolutely clear. If you know Jesus, you have one. And it is for you to serve, and it is a service rendered that others might come to maturity in Christ, either come to Christ to meet him in salvation or grow in Christ as you minister to that person. And then there's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those walking in the Spirit should begin to take on the characteristics of Christ. I remember years ago knowing this British guy named John Hunter. He worked for torchbearers uh, and taught at Cape and Ray. He came through. I grew up in California. He came through and spoke at that, Quake, that evangelical Quaker church. He said he and his wife, Christine, were at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. And his wife wanted a cup of tea. This was back in the late 60s. 
they said this to the student working across the counter. So the student goes over to the hot water tap, turns it on, puts his finger under it till it gets good and hot, gets a plastic cup or styrofoam cup, puts it under there, and he says, and then she handed me with the cup of hot water that was finger hot, he said, handed her some tea bags that looked like, I mean, some tea that looked like it was wrapped in surgical gauze. He says, you Americans don't know how to make tea. It's the first time I ever heard that the Brits had the unique way. They take a kettle and they put it on the stove and they get the water rolling, boiling. Then they take a pot and they put the kettle rolling, boiling water into the pot. Then they put a tea cozy over the pot. That's like a quilt for a teapot. People make quilts for teapots. Might have too much time on their hands. <laughs> and then they get the water rolling, boiling again. And once it's rolling, boiling again, while it's boiling, they take a tea infuser. It's a ball. They open it up. They put the tea in there. They tighten it up. And then they come over to the tea uh, pot. They take the kettle and they throw the water that's in the pot out. It was just there to make the pot hot. Got to have a hot pot. <laughs> they put the tea infuser into the pot. They put more rolling, boiling water into the pot. They put the cozy back on it. And John Hunter said, in a short period of time, that tea infuser is operating in such a way that those leaves begin to infuse that water. And it's not long before it doesn't look like water anymore. It doesn't smell like water anymore. It doesn't taste like water anymore. It's become something different. It's been transformed. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he wants to infuse your life with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control. The things whereby your life are starting to look more and more like something very different. As a matter of fact, more and more like the Lord Jesus. And your heart's going to beat with the things with which Christ's heart beats. You're going to want to look on the world with compassion. You're going to want to see people come to Jesus. You'll never get into the argument about, is it social justice? Is it gospel words? You're, you're going to say, that's like asking which wing of an airplane is more important, the right one or the left one. It's both of them. We want people to come to faith. We've got to say words. I used to go to Willow Creek. There was a guy one night. He got up at Willow Creek to give his testimony, and he said, you know what? I was at work, and I decided I was going to witness by words. You know that phrase that some people use with St. Francis of Assisi, go out and preach the gospel, and if you must use words, he never said it. Was never first, it was never even attributed to him until 260 years after his death. So this guy decided, I'm going to witness by my, by my actions. So at work, there was a guy who was working there. He was a real rough, tough guy. And this guy would pray for him, but he, 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 just, he didn't talk to him about Jesus. He just watched. Tried to live an exemplary life before him. Did everything right at work. Finally, he saw that that guy started going to the work Bible study they had there. The Willow Creek guy didn't go to the Bible study. He was witnessing by his actions, not by his words. And that guy started to change, the rough guy at work. And then the rough guy at work comes up to him, and he says to him, Hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus. I'd like to share Jesus with you. And the Willow Creek guy says, But, but I'm already a Christian. And this other guy said, What, well, you are? Well, you were the very reason I didn't want to become a Christian. And he said, why is that? 
He said, well, you lived this exemplary life, but you never talked about Jesus, so I thought you did it on your own steam. If you remove the words, you leave your actions open for any interpretation the person wants to bring to them. You've got to have the words, too. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, I think that you're going to find it's going to be difficult to be quiet, but you want to do it well. If you make a mistake, learn from it. Ask forgiveness of the person. But this is the key. If you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to receive some prompts. Follow the prompts. God gives his prompts economically. You got a flush month? The neighbor next door is out of work? You feel like you got a little bit of extra money and you feel the prompt to go pay their electric bill? Go pay it. By the way, God will give you more prompts. You feel like you need to talk to that person at work about Jesus? Go do it. It might not always go well, but you might be number seven out of 12 that are going to talk to that person before they came to Christ. This stuff's engineered from on high. And a lot of times you're going to see the person actually come to Christ. You're going to say, wow, God showed up. People who are walking in the Holy Spirit see God show up in ways they never expected. Let me give you an example. This one I'll go back. I'll give you a, a recent example. I'll give you an old example and a recent one. Don't you think that's fair? Okay. Old example. Many years ago, in the very early 1970s, I was a youth pastor in Southern California. On spring break, we would take our high school kids down to the Mexicali Valley and do village missions in the Mexicali Valley, just south of El Centro, California. We would sleep in a church up in El Centro, and then we would drive down once a day to a village, and we would do vacation Bible school with the kids. We'd get there after lunch, do vacation Bible school with the kids. Then we'd go out for a, a, a sack dinner, then come back into the village for the worship service at this lean-to at Jesus Alvarez's house. You know, El, El Servicio en la Casa de Jesus Alvarez a las seis. You know, come to the 6 o'clock worship service at Jesus Alvarez's house. Well, we had eight weeks to prepare for this mission. And we got a file from this village. It was a village called Jalisco, not to be confused with the state of Jalisco in Mexico. And we got this file, and they said, for 10 years, teams have been going to this village, and they never had any response whatsoever. Kids would come out for the vacation Bible school, but no response. I'm reading this, and my heart's breaking, but I feel the prompt. You guys... We're not going to do prep work. You do your prep work together someplace else. The time we're called together to concern ourselves with Jalisco and focus on it, we're going to spend the whole time in prayer. And every week, two to three hours, on our knees, we're praying for the village of Jalisco. God, somehow break through where things have been hard-hearted. We had two women translators. We were going to be assigned two men. The women were April Rendon and Mina Latipi. I knew them well. They'd been in my, in my youth group before. Um, they were first language Spanish speakers. They loved Jesus. We go down to El Centro, and I get assigned my two male translators. And I've been saying, Lord, we're just following you. Every time, we're following you. We're following the prompts. We're praying, Lord. We're into this. And the two translators I get, one guy's name's Prudentio. He's like, 78 or 80 years old. I'm going, oh, Lord, what are you doing? We're going to go out to this village. This guy's going to drop dead. Our whole effort's going to be trying to take care of him. Give him a little. <laughs> and the other translator was a guy named Jose 
who was a gangbanger in East L.A. and had just converted six months earlier. I'm going, oh, great. Some of us are going to be trying to resuscitate Prudentio, and the rest of us are going to be trying to work with this drug addict between two houses, maybe in Jalisco. And I've got this projection. I'm saying, Lord, I don't get it. We've been trying to follow your prompts. Why these two? We go to the village. First day, all the kids come out for play. We go out and eat our sack lunch. We come back. There's all the children, one old lady, and two teenagers come to the gathering. I'm going, Lord, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. I don't want to be another statistic in this file that one more year this village didn't come to you. We were trying to follow what you said. We've been praying with intensity. Meet us here. The next day we come back. Kids come out for the vacation Bible school. And I just sense, you know what? We need to go to the houses. We need to go talk to the men of the village. I felt the prompt. I said, Prudentio, Jose, let's go talk to all the men in the village. And we went to every house and knocked on every door of every house. And we said, can we speak to the man of the house? I was not culturally savvy. I didn't know about machismo culture. I didn't know anything. I was stupid. But I felt the prompt. And we knocked on the doors. And the men came. And Prudentio spoke. And I observed how attentive they were to an elderly man because they respected age, and I came from a culture that didn't. And I saw them listen to Jose because they knew about East L.A., and they were overwhelmed that an East L.A. drug guy could have his life transformed. What's this about? It was interesting. We go out for our sack dinner. We come back that night. Not one of those kids was there. None of them showed up. The old lady, she didn't show up. Those two teenagers, they weren't there. But every man in that village showed up that night. And Jose and Prudencio shared. And the men listened. And I realized God knows what he's about. And every man in that village that night gave his heart to Jesus. I was overwhelmed. We came back the next night. Every person in that village was at that service. The men said, you get there. Every child, every teenager, every woman, every senior citizen, they all came. And revival broke out at that village. We filled out the reports. We went back there the next year, same village. You know what we found out from the people that did follow up after we went there? People got discipled, and they started going to other villages, missionaries from that village to other villages. And I just say, Lord, I liked having a front row seat on that thing, even though there's so many things I didn't understand. And he wants to give you a front row seat on what's going on in your world. Follow the prompts. If the Holy Spirit is in your life, follow the prompts. Recent one. I'm on an airplane about every week. Wheaton College has me going, doing different things, and I, I often take a limousine, and I have to get back in time for class, so maybe I, I leave after a Monday afternoon class. I go speak someplace Monday night, maybe speak and teach in classes at another university Tuesday morning. Then I'll take maybe a red-eye special to get back so that Wednesday morning I'm back in class in time. I'm at O'Hare Airport, and this guy picks me up. 
and he's in a limo, and he says, you're going to Wheaton College. Uh, what do you do there? I said, I'm a professor. He said, what are you a professor of? I said, well, my degree's in philosophy of religion. He says, what religion are you? And I said, well, I'm a, Christ I'm a Christian. How about you? He says, I'm a Muslim. His name was Muhammad. And I could say, well, that's interesting, you know, cool. He said to me, just in case I wasn't picking up the clues, what's the difference between Christianity and Islam? And I could have said, oh, there's several, and just let it go at that. I felt the prompt. Talk with him, Jerry. I said, you know, Muhammad, I, I, I've only read half the Quran, so I'm going to defer to you on matters of the Islam. But I've read my Bible many times, and I understand it. And I'd say, first off, in, in some popular circles, there's some Muslims who think that we Christians think God came down and cohabited with a woman, and that's how we got Jesus. That's just in popular circles. You won't find that in the Muslim academic circles. But nevertheless, I said, let's get that off the table. There are no Christians who believe that. He was surprised. I said the second thing, in Surah, I think it's 3, and Surah 6, it says that you Muslims don't believe in a God of Trinity. For us, this is essential. And I said, it works like this. Just answer these questions for me. Number one, do you believe God's a contingent being or a non-contingent being? They say, what do you mean by that? I said, do you think he was caused, or do you think he has independent existence and has no causes and no needs outside of himself? Oh, I believe he's non-contingent. I believe he's not caused. I believe he has no needs outside of himself. Second, do you believe God's a God of love? You might expect a Muslim to say, I believe he's just, I believe he's merciful, I believe he's good. But 200 times I've had this conversation with Muslims, and they always say, no, I, I believe he's a God of love. Third question, who's the object of his love? And they always say, well, we are. I said, if God needs us to fulfill his nature, then you've got a contradiction in your theology. Because if God's a non-contingent being and he needs something outside of himself to complete his nature, he's non-contingent and contingent at the same time. Relational attributes like love in a non-contingent being presuppose that relationship is necessary in that being. Hafiz goes, I'm tracking with you. He never saw the contradiction in his own religion. And then I said, you know, Hafiz, why this is so important to us? He said, no, Why? I said, because we Christians believe at the core of the universe is a God who loves us. And this is essential to our faith. And I, I, I said to him, there's a man named C.S. Lewis, and he wrote a book called Mere Christianity. He said, just because you believe in Christianity, you don't have to believe everything about the other religions is necessarily false. But where Christianity would differ with them, you have to believe Christianity is true and the other religions are false. So what do we believe that would be the same? And I said there was a, a philosopher, a German philosopher named Rudolf Otto, and he, he wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy, and he sees three things in all the great religions that are common. Number one, they all believe in some divine essence. They may define it differently if they're an animist, a pantheist, a polytheist, a dualist, a monotheist, or a monotheistic trinitarian, but they all believe in this. And Hafiz said, again, I'm tracking with you. About 18 times in the conversation, he kept saying, I'm tracking with you. I said, also, all the great world religions believe in a moral code that people fail to keep. We may believe in the high ideal of love, but we have sharp words with the people we claim to love most in the world. We fall short. He says, I'm, I'm tracking with you. 
I said, third, all the great world religions believe that the divine essence is a custodian of the moral code. And if we fail at the moral code, we've offended the divine essence. And Hafiz says, I'm tracking with you. He says, I believe in the supernatural. I believe in hell, he said. And he said, I don't want to go there. I'm doing everything I can to live the best life I can. I said, Hafiz, do you believe God's a perfect being? He says, I do. I said, how's your best going for you? He says, I live in fear. I said, Hafiz, you don't have to be afraid. Listen to me, people. I am not clever enough to come up with this line of reasoning in that conversation. But I know that God was there. And he was guiding the conversation. And I said, Hafiz, he said, you don't have to be afraid. This is where Christianity is different. We believe that this God, who is love, has sent his son to love us and forgive us of our sin and to reconcile us into relationship with him. And you can know him. He will love you. He will forgive you. He will enter into your life as Lord and bring order out of the chaos. And Hafiz said, that's the most comforting thing I have ever heard in my life. And you could just stop there. But I felt the prompt. Hafiz, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? None, he said. And here's this Muslim praying out loud in that car to trust Christ as his Savior and Lord. And then we got to start working on follow-up with him. Is this cool or what? So here's the thing, people. You have these people in your life. You have the Holy Spirit. He entered into your life when you believed. If you're not walking in the Spirit... Spiritual breathe, confess your sin, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and follow the prompts and live this exciting life. He won't prompt you to do something that's contrary to Scripture. If you feel like, I feel like I want to do this over here and you know it's contrary to Scripture, the Holy Spirit didn't give you that prompt. The Holy Spirit uses the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But follow the prompts and have a great adventure. And my guess is people around you will be coming to faith, and it's just too much fun. I don't think, I don't think there's ever, every week, I don't think there's ever less than four people I'm able to share Jesus with. And it doesn't come from going out trying. It's coming from, Lord, fill me with your spirit this day and help me to sense your prompts. And it begins to happen. If somebody was overlaying on you a goal that you should share Jesus with one person a week, you'd probably feel the pressure of that. If they said one person a day, you'd feel the pressure of that. But could you say to God, Lord, intrinsically, give me a conversation a week or a conversation twice a week and with an intrinsic motivation, say, fill me with your spirit to that end because I'm here. And you said the fields were white unto harvest. You said the problem is there aren't enough people who want to go. I'm willing to go. Lead me to the ones that you're cultivating. Let's pray. Father, I pray for each person in this room that you would allow them to walk in the power of your Holy Spirit. That as your son said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. That each person in this room would sense the prompts and that each person in this room would not be dissuaded if it doesn't go so well. They would say, Lord, I'm under orders to you. I'll go where you want me to go, and I'm not going to stop just because somebody says no. I'm going to go because your spirit prompts. 
And I pray, Father, that each person in this room over this next year would see at least one person come to know Christ. Bring them here to the fellowship so that they might grow in Jesus. And I thank you, Father, that you called us to live a really fun and exciting life. In your name we pray. Amen.